Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Century, and they're beautiful, aren't they? The words that are contained there. His power has escaped him in the latter stage of his career. These words were written last week by a journalist by the name of Zachary Silver about a man named Matt Carpenter. That name means little to most of you. Matt began playing with the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team in around 2008-2009. He's only 35 years of age, but his career is coming to an end. Three years ago, he was riding the crest of a wave that was immense, really, powerful. That year, 2018, he hit 36 home runs for the Cardinals. He had a once-in-a-lifetime game playing their arch rivals and the team that they were chasing to get into the playoffs, the Chicago Cubs. And that game, he hit three home runs and two doubles. Now, that has rarely been done by anyone. But in the latter stages, the last three years of his career, he's only gotten one hit out of every five times at bat. 203 batting average. The question is, what's happened to him? Now, I want to let you know something about Matt that has nothing to do with baseball. I'm sure many of you are grateful for that. He is a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He grew up in a Christian home. His father was a coach. Both of his parents were believers in Jesus. They took him to church as far back as he can remember. And at the age of 11, he gave his life to Jesus Christ and was baptized as a believer. As oftentimes happens as he progressed into his high school years, he began to drift in his faith. He got a full scholarship to go play baseball at Texas Christian University. His faith did not do so well there, nor did his baseball game actually. As a high school student, he was a second team All-American, not just all district or all Texas, but All-American. And he had depended on his own innate ability. He really hadn't worked hard at it. He began to work hard at it. He was overweight, he dropped 30 pounds, and he became a person who was a reckon to be forced with until he had an injury to his elbow and he had to undergo Tommy John surgery. That's not a typical surgery that a position player in baseball undergoes. It's usually a pitcher who has that ailment. He missed his senior year when he had expected to be drafted to play Major League Baseball. Then in his fifth year, redshirt senior, he was able to play again. And he said when he and his team were playing in a playoff game to determine who went to the World Series of college baseball, they were playing their rival, the University of Texas, who beat them that day, he said when he walked off that field, he said to himself, this probably is my last baseball game to ever play competitively. But, he said, I told myself I'm good with this. The reason he was good with it is because of his relationship to Jesus Christ. In that time of adversity in his life, his relationship had been restored he said, I began to read the Word of God again. I began to share my faith with other people. I was no longer a closet Christian or a nominal Christian. So something good came out of that difficulty in his life, did it not? Then he found himself drafted by the Cardinals in the 16th round. Now, that's way deep into the draft, which indicated the Cardinals didn't really think he was a sure thing to make it to the major league level. But he did, and he's had a good career. 
until the last three years. He's been in a slump, as I mentioned. Do any of you find yourself this morning in a spiritual slump? Would you say there has been a time in your life when you were doing extremely well, but you seemingly are experiencing a power shortage or outage in your spiritual life? Well, if that's the case, this message is for you today. It's a message which is pertinent to any believer anytime because we're just one step away from entering into a slump. All of us, even those of us who are doing well spiritually, walking in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So there's something here for all of us today. I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 22 as today we're considering that power for living the Christian life is to be found in two sources which we will see in this passage. Matthew 22 verse 23. On that day some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and questioned him. I'm going to interpret along the way today a little differently than I normally do. That day was the Wednesday before the Friday that Jesus was to be crucified. Jesus had been in the temple the day before, and he had caused a ruckus there when he was in the temple, because you may recall that he took a whip which he had fashioned and ran all the money changers out of the temple. You can imagine when he came in on Wednesday, there were people, especially the Sadducees, who are mentioned in this passage of Scripture as his enemies trying to trap him. The Sadducees, you see, were people who had the business side of the temple. They were the priestly family. They were a sect among four primary sects of Jews in Israel. I'll begin with the sect of the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were at polar opposites theologically. The Pharisees were men. There were about 6,000 of them, but they had great influence because they were laymen. They received no money for what they did in their work, and their work was to uphold the Bible that they knew, but really what they had done was not uphold the scripture, but they would go to the great rabbis and quote the rabbis. So they were a group which was very influential and were highly honored among the Jews of Jesus' day. Another sect were the zealots. You may remember when Jesus called his 12 apostles, one of them was named Simon the Zealot. Zealots were a sect that were committed to give their lives, if necessary, to rid Israel of Roman influence. They were men who were like guerrilla warriors in the culture. And they were a sect that was impressive as well. And in some circles, admired. The third sect are the Essenes. These were those who really separated themselves. They were monastic. They separated themselves from the rest of Israel. They found their residence on the shore of the Dead Sea. That's a great place to vacation. You've ever been there before? Not much to see there, and they didn't care because they were ascetics. They denied themselves, and they gave themselves largely to copying text of the Hebrew Bible, as we would call it, the Old Testament, and conveying when those documents, those parchments and pieces of animal skin which had been dried and the Old Testament had been written on, they would transfer them as accurately as they could, taking great pains to do that on to new surfaces that could enable the Word of God to live on. We owe a great debt to them. Some of you know the term Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes were the ones who were committed 
to keeping that. There are some scholars who believe John the Baptist, after his parents probably died while he was still a boy, maybe an adolescent, went there and was raised into adulthood there. Because his attire, remember, he wasn't into fashion at all. He was a guy who ate stuff that most people didn't eat, locusts. Can you imagine having grasshoppers for breakfast? If they're fried, I've heard they're pretty good. If they're chocolate covered, they're even better is what I've been told. And honey, I can dig the honey part of his diet. But he had a lot of the attitude toward God that was exhibited in the writings of the Essenes in the Qumran community. But the Sadducees, they were the smallest group and they did not believe in the supernatural. They were the priestly family and they were the ones who oversaw the elaborate system of sacrifice and the festivals that were incumbent upon people to participate, males in particular, to participate in, in Jerusalem. And they come to Jesus with this crazy question for them. It shows their hypocrisy because they say there is no resurrection. They begin to question Jesus. They did read what we would call the Old Testament, but they were selective in what they read. They simply read the law. Moses' law, saying that everything else after the book of Deuteronomy was simply commentary on that law. But the irony of this is that they were people who didn't believe in the afterlife, and consequently their ethics were very poor for good reason. They didn't have to give an answer to God at the end of their lives. They would take the brunt of his discipline or punishment in this life. They would have been agreeable to that. But we see they're asking Jesus this question. Look at verses 24 and following. Teacher, it's almost facetious that they would address Jesus as a rabbi. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. This is known as leveret marriage. The word levir means brother in Hebrew or Aramaic. And so what would happen, and this is prescribed in the law of Moses, that if a man died, his widow would become the wife of the next oldest brother, and so forth and so on. Look what he goes on to say. He's probably referencing an actual situation. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. Poor girl. Unbelievable. Having eight husbands, can you imagine? And then they asked this facetious question, really, considering what we've learned about them this morning regarding the supernatural. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. Verse 29 says, But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. The word mistaken is a word which means basically to wander away from. That's the meaning. To go astray. which used to describe sheep who went astray. It also means in some settings to deceive. And he's calling them what they were. They are men who have gone astray from the word of the Lord and more importantly from God himself. And they were deceptive. They were showing their deception in approaching Jesus the way in which they approach him here. He says, you are mistaken. You're either self-deceived or knowingly deceiving, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. The word understanding, listen carefully, 
This kind of knowledge was to know something on the basis of absolute certainty. They did not have the kind of certainty that Jesus Christ brought to bear in his coming. That certainty which is based upon the scripture and the power of God. And whenever scriptures, the term shows up, scripture or scriptures in the plural, shows up in the New Testament, it's always referring back to what we call the Old Testament. They did not know the law of Moses. They did not know the prophets. They did not know the poetic literature. And that left them at a great disadvantage because those parts of our Bible have Christ as their subject. The primary emphasis of all the Bible is Jesus Christ. We'll look at something that Jesus said about that a little later. Verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. How will we who know Christ be like angels in heaven? Well, we'll glorify God forever. We will have no sin in heaven as the angels experience now. We know there were one-third of the angels who followed the archangel Lucifer, whom we know as Satan, in rebellion, and they were rejected by God and kicked out of heaven. You can read about it in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 and see how that all unfolded. We will never die in heaven. Another way that we're not like them is that we will not be part of procreating. Look at verse 31. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Wow. That was a normal response to the teaching of Jesus, wasn't it? Everywhere we observe his teaching, people are blown away with the authority with which he taught. Jesus was not authoritarian. The Pharisees were authoritarian. They wanted to lord it over people. Jesus was authoritative because what he said was what he heard from God the Father. The Bible says, Jesus himself says, I do not speak of anything except what I have first heard from the Father. In his humanity, certainly Jesus is fully God, was in his incarnation, but in his incarnation, he humbled himself and became the bondservant of the Father the slave of the Father. So he listened to what the Father said and he simply was a conduit of sharing that with others. So Jesus is telling these people how they can have power in living. The onlookers, the bystanders, were taking all of this dialogue in between the Sadducees and Jesus. And undoubtedly, many of them got what Jesus was saying in verse 29. We're going to spend the rest of our time in an attempt to know how this applies to us. We know about the afterlife. We've learned that in heaven there will be no marriage because every relationship will be just as positive for us in heaven as the relationship which we cherish the most here in this world. That's the good news for us. But what we want to know is, how does the teaching of Jesus, especially in verse 29, relate to us? How do we have this power that God wants us to have for living according to this passage and associated passages? Let me let you know that I have scoured the scripture 
in preparation for this message. I'm not going to be able to say everything it says about the scriptures or the power of God. But I'm trusting by the time I finish this teaching today, you will have a clear understanding of the scriptures, at least in potential form, and what the power of God is. I've already indicated that the scriptures that were referred to by Jesus are what we call our Old Testament. Jesus says this about the Old Testament. He says the scriptures cannot be broken. This takes us back to the definition of the word understanding. It's a special kind of knowledge, remember, to know something on the basis of absolute knowledge. The Word of God is a pristine book. Every Word of God is inspired by God. It's breathed out from God. It was breathed out through the pens of people whom God selected to give us both testaments of our Bible. These people, some prophets, some kings, other people, apostles, these men and women were led by the Spirit of God and gave us an utterly trustworthy, an ultimately trustworthy document. I do not have the time to go into a defense of the Scripture from a more or less scientific point of view. I'm not talking about science in physics or science in biology or geology. I'm not talking about those kinds, that kind of science. I'm talking about the science of how people know a text from antiquity is called textual criticism, how they know that a part of the Bible is true, if all the Bible is true. And it's amazing. I advise you to take advantage the next time we have the opportunity with Engage Ministry, led by Caleb Harrelson in our church. He will devote a lot of time to defending the trustworthiness of the Bible. This brought to my mind, I hadn't even thought about it, what Charles Spurgeon was asked, how do you defend the Bible? And he said, I would no more try to defend the Word of God than to try to defend a lion when he is let loose. I just get out of his way. And this is the way it is with the Word of God, the Scriptures. They cannot be broken. And then Jesus says this in John, again, in John 5. He says, you search the Scriptures because you believe that in them you have eternal life. And it is they who witness to me. The Bible is a witness to the person of Jesus Christ. Keep your place here, if you will. Go to Luke 24, the last chapter of Luke. The setting is Resurrection Day in the evening. Jesus has already spent time with two disciples of his, unnamed. He's walked with them on the road to Emmaus. And after he has revealed himself to them in his resurrection body and spent time opening the scriptures. And it's beautiful what the scripture says, the dialogue between those two disciples who were forlorn. They were sad. They were depressed, and rightly so. Their master, their king, had been brutalized on the cross, and they did not know where he was. For all they knew, he was gone forever. And then Jesus shows up, and he proves himself to them. They see his hands when he feeds them. He becomes the host. They invited him for a meal, and Jesus became the host. And when he was distributing the bread to the other two, they had their eyes open because they saw the marks of the cross in his wrists. And then they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Have you ever had, had your heart burn in a good way when you've heard the Word of God taught accurately and applicably to your life? 
I've had that happen to me so many times. And that happened to them. And it happens when people are eager to receive what is given to them. But in the latter part of this chapter, Jesus is in the company of the apostles now. Not just two unnamed disciples, but the apostles. Eleven at this time. Judas has already hanged himself. And look at verses 44 and 45. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and the word Psalms would cover the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, must be fulfilled. Then, look at here, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Wonderful, isn't it, that we have a Lord like that? Hebrews 4.12, many of you could quote it. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when we put ourselves in a place to hear the Word of God, God speaks to us through the Word, and He builds us up. And he shows us who he is. And on the basis of our knowing who he is, we grow in the grace and knowledge of him. And we become productive followers of Jesus Christ. Scripture. You have no understanding of the scripture. How is your understanding of the scripture? Do you know the value of the scripture? If you know the value of the scripture... Is it evident in your life, in your hungering and thirsting after fellowship with the Lord as He reveals Himself and His will for you in the Scripture? Also, when Jesus speaks to these Sadducees, it was not anything that they liked to hear. You have no understanding of the Scriptures. This upstart prophet from the backwoods of Galilee how dare he come and say that to us? And then the second thing, you have no understanding of the power of God. What is he talking about? What is the power of God? We're helped by Luke in chapter 4, verse 14. After Jesus had finished the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, he comes out ready to undertake his public ministry. And the scripture says he went to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now let me remind you, in 2 Corinthians 3.17, the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit is the Lord. God the Father is our Lord. Jesus Christ is our Lord. But don't forget the Spirit of God is our Lord. And Jesus submitted himself to the Father and to the Spirit of God in his flesh as he went about doing what he did. Another aspect of the power of God is the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. If you know Christ, you've been born again by the living and abiding word. Of God. How powerful is that message? It's powerful to the extent that it raised you from the dead and me from the dead spiritually. We were dead people spiritually. Dead people walking. And then God comes and He resurrects us internally. And He prepares us for the rest of our time on earth to join Him in heaven if we die before Christ returns, our bodies will come out of the ground and we will be people who inhabit a spiritual body that's just like Christ, the one we will carry with us throughout eternity. Isn't that exciting to think about? Never decaying, never capable of sin again. De dedicated fully without any hindrance internally or any impingement from the outside to keep us from glorifying the Lord. What is the power? The power of the Spirit of God and the power of the preaching of the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says this, 
to those of us who are saved, the preaching of the cross is awesome news. To those of us or you who are perishing, don't believe it is not good news for you. It's bad news until you see it as being good news. And you can indeed realize your need for what Christ has done on the cross for you and his offer of forgiveness and eternal life. Second question, how is this power accessed? Well, it begins by knowing that the Spirit lives in you if you're a believer. In the book of Acts chapter 19, Paul arrives at Ephesus. He spent quite a bit of time in Ephesus and he finds that there are some disciples of Christ there when he gets there. And do you remember the question that he asked them? He said to them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And without hesitation, they said, we never have heard about the Holy Spirit. There are some people in this room who have received Christ, and without knowing it, you had to have him give you the insight and the power to believe because no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. And in Romans chapter 10, he talks about this. He makes this statement. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You have salvation. But it's conceivable that there are people present today who are unaware of the Holy Spirit's part in your life. If you know Christ, he lives in you. Jesus is spoken of in this way in his resurrection in the book of Romans chapter 8. He who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. You who know Christ, if you belong to Jesus, you know you've given your life to him. You have the Spirit of Christ living in you and he is the one who empowers you. How is his access? We got to know the Spirit lives in us. Also, it's accessed by faith. I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. And there are all kinds of ideas and suggestions about how we access the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 13 and 14 of Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that would be the promised covenant that he made with Abraham and his offspring, and through Abraham, all the nations of the world. He says, in order that this blessing might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How do we receive the promise of the Spirit? Through faith. It's not necessarily attached with feeling. It's through faith. Now, oftentimes, like when people receive Christ, they have a sensation or something that goes on internally. But some people like C.S. Lewis, the great apologist of the 20th century, said he had no sensation in terms of some kind of experience that was emotional when he gave his life to Christ, except that he said he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. He really didn't want to do it, but he had no choice, he thought. The Bible says that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We come to know God by faith based upon what God promises in his word. This goes back to the scripture, doesn't it? We go to the word of God. We pour over the word of God. We read it. We feast on it. We're blessed by it. We're directed by it. We're puzzled by it sometimes. But don't worry about what you do not know if you know Christ. What you do not know in time, God will reveal that to you 
for the Bible is not for a one-time reading. I have a tendency, when I read a book, I'm done with it. I'm not going to read another one. Read it another time, I want to read another book. But the Bible is something that's to be read over and over and over again. And remember, all of it, all of it has implications for us in our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the subject of all. It's accessed the power of God, knowing the Spirit's in you. And by faith, trusting the Holy Spirit to fill you, to control you, surrender to him. Also, by obedience. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. This is what we read in, probably let's begin with 9 and read through 11. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let me pause just a moment. When I pray for you, are you pray for me relevant to our spiritual health? We should pray this kind of prayer. That the knowledge of the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding will come to bear in those lives for whom we are praying. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously. And so it has to do with obedience too to the Word of God. Third question regarding understanding this power. What does the power do in and through us? It transforms us. It does. We become more and more like Jesus. We exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit lives in, I, in me and in you, and we say, Holy Spirit, take control of our lives, then He produces His nature in us. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the life that is the product of the power of the Spirit working in us, transforms us, empowers us to pray. Romans 8, 26, 27, read those verses, and you see how in our ignorance we don't know what to pray, we don't know how to pray, but we ask the Lord, Lord, Holy Spirit, help us to pray. And He, in fact, will do that. Read that in Romans 8. It makes us fruitful in our witness. Jesus said, before ascending into heaven, He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the world. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and empower us, not so we can feel good, not so that we can be pleasant people. He does it so that we can, notice the careful choice of Jesus' words, be witnesses. Being is important. Without being, all the doing we might seek to do, this was the Pharisees, they did a lot of good things but it was in their own strength and not in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. In short, the power in and through us of the Holy Spirit are great works. Maybe not in the minds of other people, but they're self-defying works. They help us to deny ourselves and see it's not us. You remember when the man who was given the responsibility, his name was Zerubbabel, to rebuild the temple, when the exiles, after 70 years in exile in Babylon, came back, and he was the leader. He was not royalty, but it was the next thing to it. He was the governor, kind of like a substitute king. And he looked at a pile of rubble where the temple had been, and he was daunted by that. And the word came through the prophet Zechariah, 
He says, not by might, that not does, what that means is not by the power of your personality, your charisma. You may have had a charisma bypass when you were born, but that doesn't keep you from being used by God, nor does it keep me. It's not about us and our persuasive abilities, nor by power, and that word is a word which was used of the collective power of a vast army. It's not our reaching critical mass, getting a lot of people together and saying, we're going to do this. Well, if you are filled with the Spirit, you want to be with other people who are, but if you're the only one filled with the Spirit, the Lord can use you immensely. Keep that in mind. Don't use that as an excuse. So we see that he wants us to be fruitful in witness. In the great works, what is Zerubbabel here, after he said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And then the Lord says through the prophet to him, listen carefully. He says, this mountain you see, and that was the mountain of rubble, shall become a plain. It'll become smooth. It'll look like it had never been there because the Spirit of God is doing the work through you. You know, the Holy Spirit is critical to using you as an individual, but to using any church. If we leave Him out of the equation and we don't do any more than give lip service to Him, then we're just spinning our wheels, frankly. We might as well not be trying to do anything for the Lord. How is God's power lost? We can be empowered with the Spirit, but we lose it by grieving the Holy Spirit. Read about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 11 through 22. It has to do with relationships with others in the body of Christ. We grieve the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine we can make the Holy Spirit of God sad by the way we mistreat people in the body? By quenching the Spirit, the Bible says, do not quench the Spirit. Stop grieving the Spirit. Stop quenching the Spirit. And the idea of quenching the Spirit is related to holding grudges, being angry. Do any of you wrestle with anger? Just have outbursts of anger? That grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit of God. Here's another way the power of the Spirit is lost. By boasting in ourselves. Paul in a moment of great candor, says, I asked Jesus three times to remove a thorn in my flesh. And probably he's talking about some physical ailment, likely an eye ailment. And each time, what does Jesus say? No, no, no. And after the third time, what does Jesus say? Power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, and so what does Paul say? After he heard that definitive statement from the Lord, this is what he said. I will boast if I boast about anything going forward in my weakness. That is so counterintuitive, even for the rank and file Christian in America today. That is when we are weak, we are strong because our weakness and our recognition in our own soul that we're weak throws us back upon whom? Upon the Spirit of God is what it does. Remember what Paul says about his coming to Corinth the first time. He said, I came to you not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power because I did not want your faith to rest on the wisdom of men, but on the wisdom of God. I have seen it over and over again. People who are just shaking like a leaf and they wanted to tell someone about Christ. And you would think, if somebody's sort of like that, nobody's wanting to listen to them, but the power of God used those people to reach people for Christ. In short, how is God's power lost? By walking in dependence on ourselves instead of dependence on the Lord. If you are suffering a power outage, what are you to do? Well, I've talked about it three or four different ways already, but I want to say it one more time. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
keep on being filled is what it says. When we sin, we need to confess our sin, receive what Christ promises, forgive us, remembering what the Proverbs say in Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and renounces is really the word, renounces and and, uh, repents of his sin will be a person who is made clean. So we need to be filled with the Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me. Take me. And I I love the story of Samson. It's one of the more intriguing stories in the Bible. I remember it from my boyhood. It's always been there in my mind, it seems. But you remember the, the story of Samson, right? How he was a playboy and he was under a Nazarite vow which meant his hair would not be cut. He couldn't drink anything from the vine and so forth and so on. And how he fell for a lady named Delilah, Philistine. She coaxed him into giving the secret of his power. And he said, it's my hair. Cut it and I'll be powerless. Before that, there were several attempts on her part to get him in a place of vulnerability and have the Philistines outside, a bunch of them to come in and take him away. That finally happened when he gave the secret away. And do you know what the writer of Judges says about his reaction after that happened? He said he did not know that the Lord had left him. What does that tell you? It says, he said, I'm going to get up and whip these guys just like I'd done before. And then the, the narrator says, He did not know the Lord had left him. It's true of Samson. It can be true of us too. We may not know the Holy Spirit has left us in terms of being our Lord. Remember, he doesn't leave us, but he is misplaced by us. I woke up yesterday morning. I needed to get out early. I was eager to get out, get to work. I dressed I began to look for my keys. And I came out uh, of my pocket, my right pocket. I had my car key, but I couldn't find the other keys. And of course, I thought about all the things I could not get into. I couldn't get into the church building. I couldn't get, if I got into the church building, I couldn't get in my office. I have a desk and a place I can lock up valuables in there. I couldn't get that. I was thinking, what am I going to do? So I got down on my knees. I'm looking under the bed. And you know, at 71, getting down on your knees is kind of dangerous. You may not get back up. But I'm looking around, and I got down there at least three times. And I began to, in my mind, retrace my steps. When I came in the evening before, I went to where I was, nothing there. I went everywhere, couldn't find it. And I said, okay, Lord, I'll just have to live with it. And I began to think of alternatives. I was going to a meeting with Reuben, our facilities manager, and I said, well, he can at least give me a key to my office and I can get in there and so forth. Well, then I thought, man, I just don't know where it is. And then I I rubbed my hands. I had jeans on, and you know, jeans have that little compartment at the top. Some of them do. And guess what was in there? I had misplaced my keys. Do you know we misplace the Holy Spirit when we are not submitted to Him for His filling and His control? As far as I knew, He wasn't. I'm talking about the keys now. The keys were not there but they were there all the time. If you know Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and the only appropriate response to the Holy Spirit of God is to say, Lord, I surrender. I submit to you. Also, Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, there's the word, and love and self-control. We have to kind of fire ourselves up. That's the picture. Not emotionally, but put ourselves in a position of submission again and a position to recommit and re-relate in a way, connect with the Lord. 
David said it. We read it from Psalm 51 after he had sinned egregiously, committed murder, at least 30 men died to cover up his sin of adultery. He lied. Wow. He says, please, Father God, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. He had known the sweetness of that relationship. And now he says, please don't. Later in the Psalms, I don't know about the chronology of this Psalm I'm going to refer to in relationship to the 51st Psalm, but what he says to the Lord, Lord, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He leads us on level ground. Not an up and down kind of slumping and rising and slumping spiritually and rising, but he gives us the capacity to walk consistently with him and be fruitful to him. If you're suffering from some sort of slump spiritually, a power shortage, do a careful examination of your heart. And if you're not sure if you've dethroned the Holy Spirit, you know how you can make sure? Just say, Holy Spirit, take control of me. Fill me. And use me. Because I know this is why you saved me to begin with. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask now, and this is my prayer. I'm not just praying this prayer for window dressing to coax you to do anything. This is my prayer. Lord, thank you for putting me in a place where I really had to examine my heart and get right with you in areas that were off kilter and before I could share this truth with these dear people. Oh, Lord, fill me, fill us with your Spirit. Teach us, Lord, how to walk in the Spirit, in dependence upon you. We submit ourselves to you anew, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless.